Good morning. It's uh, great to be with you. Glad you're with us. Uh, and if you don't know, we're in, this, in a series in the book of Acts, which Timothy said we've titled uh, Thy Kingdom Come, God's Mission to the World. Uh, and just a reminder, the, the book of Acts is not a complete history of the early church, uh, as some have, have regarded it. It is rather a history of God's power working through His church to accomplish His mission. In Acts 1-6, through 6, we have uh, seen that God established His church by the power of the Holy Spirit through the apostles. And then last week we looked at the life and the death of Stephen in Acts chapter 7. Uh, Stephen, one of the seven appointed to care for the widows and the needy. And this morning we're looking at chapter 8. Uh, And here we see the gospel of Jesus Christ continuing on the trajectory uh, that was promised in Acts 1 verse 8, where Jesus promised that the Holy Spirit would come and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Here we see the gospel breaking in to Samaria. And I want to look at one question this morning before I I read the passage. One question that we're going to look at. What does gospel renewal look like? What does gospel renewal look like? So I'm going to ask you to stand as we look at Acts chapter 8, verses 4 through 25. This is God's Word to us this morning. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the Word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had, who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed, so there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. And they all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them. But they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of the wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but God's word endures forever. Let's pray. Lord God, I ask that you would come and and by your spirit and by your word that you would breathe afresh upon us, that you would meet us where we are, that you would move, that you would renew and revive 
and change and strengthen and transform us. God, would you speak to us? Would, would we have ears to hear? Would our, our minds be illumined? Would our hearts be inflamed? Would you, Spirit, accomplish your purpose through your word this morning? Remove me so that Christ and your purposes might be seen. So in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can have a seat. Well, the one question that I want us to look at this morning, what does gospel renewal look like? What does gospel renewal look like? What does spiritual revival look like? And by that question, I do not mean the big tent revivals uh, where the signs say come Thursday, Friday, and Saturday as if we can plan and coordinate spiritual revival. Instead, I'm talking about a fresh wind, a fresh movement of the gospel by the power of the Holy Spirit that cannot be coordinated, but rather is a gift of the sovereign Lord. I'm talking about what happened in Samaria in our passage in Acts chapter 8. Talking about what happened in the Great Awakening of the 18th century when thousands would come to faith through the preaching of Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield, where churches would just read Jonathan Edwards' sermons in monotone voice, and many would weep under the conviction of the Spirit and the Word of God. I'm talking about what happened in the early 19th century with the student volunteer movement when a growing passion for global missions fell upon many college students and thousands of missionaries were sent out all over the world. I'm talking about what happened in 1857 in New York City with a businessman named Jeremiah Lanfear who felt called to inner city ministry, left his job to engage in this ministry and found it to be extremely difficult. And so he decided to host a noonday prayer gathering at a Dutch Reformed church in Manhattan. And the first day he went upstairs thinking nobody was going to show, and five people showed. And they prayed for 30 minutes. And then the next week, 20 people show, showed up, and they prayed for 30 minutes. And then the following week after that, 40 people showed, and then he started hosting daily noon gatherings, prayer gatherings. And within six months, 10,000 people were showing up to pray for the city of New York. And all they, all they were doing was praying for the city and praying for those that had never heard the gospel to come to faith, and the impact in the city was remarkable. I'm talking about what happened in China over the last 65 years. 65 years in China, a growth, the number of Christians from thousands to now over 130 million I could go on and on about the ways that our God has worked in our country and around the world. But I want us to look this morning at this passage and see what it reveals to us about true renewal, spiritual revival. The first thing that we see in this passage is that true spiritual renewal means every member is an evangelist. Every member is an evangelist. Now, a few weeks ago, that may sound familiar because I preached out of Acts 6, verse 1 through 7, and I made the point that every member of Christ's church is called to be a minister. And I said that all are called to use our gifts and our passions for the sake of the Lord and His kingdom. This week, I want to say that the one way we know, one of the ways we know spiritual renewal is happening is when every member is an evangelist. Look at verse 4. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word of God. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed Christ. The church here was experiencing incredible persecution 
As a result, every Christian in Jerusalem was scattered except for the apostles. And those who were scattered went about preaching the word of God. Now our passage focuses on Philip, who was not an apostle. He was one of the seven appointed in chapter 6 to care for the widows and the needy. And he went to Samaria preaching the word of God and proclaiming Christ. And when we hear the word, or, or we hear the phrase, preach the word of God, I think most of us may envision what, what I referred to earlier. Jonathan Edwards, George Whitfield, what we do here on a Sunday morning, uh, which we are not Jonathan Edwards nor George Whitfield, but we are preaching from the pulpit. And I don't really like the translation of preach the word of God here. The Greek is not preaching. It is the word for gospel or for evangel. And what they were doing was witnessing. They were witnessing, gospeling, evangelizing. And as I said last week, that a Christian witness is someone who makes Christ clear to those who are unclear. Making Christ clear in words spoken and by the deeds lived out. Notice again verse 4. Those who were scattered went about preaching the word of God. Philip was not unique. They all were witnessing. They all were proclaiming Christ wherever they went. The early church was experiencing revival and renewal because every member was an evangelist. Every member was proclaiming Christ in their words and in their lives. If you've ever been to our discovery class, uh, a class where we encourage people who want to know more about who we are as a church, and if you want to become a member, we highly encourage you to attend. If you've been to that class, you may remember a quote from a Yale historian, Kenneth Scott Latteret. This is what uh, Kenneth Scott Latteret says, that the chief agents in the expansion of Christianity appear not to have been those who made it a profession, but men and women carried on on their livelihood in some secular manner, and they spoke their faith to those they met in this natural fashion. The expansion of the early church did not depend on the apostles, but on ordinary men and women who would witness to the gospel of Jesus as they lived their lives. And so it continues today. It's the same way today. And so here's the question. Are you, are we living as an evangelist? Now, I know there can be negative connotation with that word evangelism. I have negative connotation with some of my own personal experience. Maybe you're afraid, like I am at times, of the type of experience that Bill Metzger writes about in his book, Tell the Truth. Uh, Metzger talks about when he went to listen to a talk on evangelism, and the speaker t kept telling stories of all the success that he had experienced as a soul winner. That phrase just makes me, <laughs> I'm like, not, I don't even like that phrase. And his crowning illustration, Metzger writes, was a detailed set of instructions on how to roll up a gospel track, roll one up, in such a way that it could be accurately dropped from the window of a moving car. And the object was for it to drift to the feet of a hitchhiker as you passed him by. And it was what the speaker called dropping a gospel bomb. <laughs> that is not what I'm talking about. Please do not think that's what I'm talking about when I say evangelism. And some of you have maybe had that experience. 
been a, been a recipient of it or a participant in it. I've been both. Uh, that is not what we're talking about. Rather, what I, I am talking about is much more a heart and a posture and a willingness to step out that can be characterized by what happened in September of 1878. The mouth of the River Thames near London. There was a dreadful accident with two ships. The passenger steamer ship called the Bible Cas- the Cas- Caswell uh, collided with a boat called the Princess Alice at the mouth of the river. And that foggy night, 600 people were drowned in the river. There were two ferrymen running ferries at a pier, and they both heard the collision and the cries. At the inquest in England investigating the event, the coroner interviewed both of these men, and he asked them about their response. And one man said, I heard the cries, and I was, I was so tired that I went home to eat supper. And the other one said, I got in my little boat, rode out, to, rode out to the middle of the river, and I saw all of the bodies round about, and I was so frustrated because of this little boat, and I kept crying out, oh God, for a bigger boat. Oh, God, for a bigger boat. This is the heart and the vision that I pray every single one of us would have. That every member would not turn a deaf ear to the cries of those in need, but we would love well and love deeply those God has placed around us. And that we would cry out and we would long for many to know the rescuing and redeeming love of Christ. Verse 6. The crowds with one accord paid attention. They paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and they saw the signs that he did. Catch this. The power of Philip's words and the power of his deeds, the healing, the casting out of the demons, enabled him to get the attention of the crowd so that he could proclaim Christ, so that he could evangelize, so that he could gospel those around him. Think for a moment about your lives, where our sovereign God has placed you, your living situation, your job, your friends, people you have favor with, your classmates. Think about your gifts, your own interests, your story. He has not gifted you with skills and passions for no reason. He has not placed some of you on the east side and the west side and the south side for no reason. He has not gifted some of you with the ability to enter into people's addiction or to enter into people's poverty or to enter into intellectual discussion because you have a sharp mind for no reason. He has not gifted some of you with an entrepreneurial spirit for no reason. God has done all of that so that you can make Christ known. In the way in which you work and in the conversations that you have at work or at school with the people you have the same interest as, in the way that you love your neighbor, the conversations that you have with your neighbor. Do you invite those who live next to you, those who work with you or in class with you, those who may be in some running group or CrossFit or whatever interest you might have, do you invite those people, into opportunities to hear about Jesus. Sunday morning is an opportunity for people to hear about Jesus. City group is an opportunity for people to hear about Jesus. Your personal 
personal story of how God has worked and is at work in your life is a way for people to hear about Jesus. Timothy said this, but Easter is one of the highest attended Sunday services in our country. And many who don't go to church regularly attend on Easter. A very easy, easy way for you to extend an invitation to someone is to invite them to Easter service. Invite them into our community on Easter Sunday. So gospel renewal in Christ Central Church depends not on the full-time pastors, but on you. And God has commanded all of us to go into the world, to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And that means not just me or Timothy, but you, and you, and you, and you. It means we all go. Now, the early church, they went out witnessing when being persecuted. Just a little side note for you. Maybe we have it a little bit too easy here in Durham, North Carolina. Maybe we need a little hardship. Maybe we need a little persecution for us to wake up and begin to see how serious it is that we witness and proclaim Jesus to all people in all places. So the second way we know that spiritual renewal is taking place is when Jesus is preached across dividing lines. Jesus is preached across dividing lines. To understand what's happening in our passage, we have to understand the place that Philip went. And he went to Samaria. And we learn about Samaria in the Old Testament. 1 Kings 12 uh, and how Syria, uh, Samaria would be impacted in 2 Kings 17 as a result of the Assyrian exile. Now, not to go into too much detail about Samaria, but it was part of the northern kingdom when Israel split in the, into north and the south. Samaria was the land between Jerusalem and Galilee. And Samaritans were despised by the Jews. They were thought to be half-breeds, having a form of worship of the true God, but they mixed it with the worship of their own gods. And Jews, when traveling to Jerusalem from the south, would go around Samaria instead of going through it, even though it was the most direct route. If you remember John chapter 4, Jesus went against centuries-old taboo of traveling into Samaria when he went to meet the woman at the well. And now Philip goes against the taboo, and he travels into a no-go zone. People just did not go there. Jews did not go there. It was a no-go zone. People who were despised, half-breeds, people to be avoided. And Philip goes to preach the gospel. In 1864, Father Damien was ordained a priest on the island of Hawaii. A great number of those on the island began to get sick, and 800 people contracted leprosy. And over the de- decades, 8,000 would contract leprosy. And leprosy at this point was thought to be highly contagious, so the government puts all of the lepers on a peninsula and quarantines them. It was a definite no-go zone. You just didn't go there. And Father Damien felt the call to move to this peninsula, start a church, and not just act as a priest, but he would serve as a nurse and as a doctor. As he would clean their wounds and he would take care of those dying. And six months after his arrival, Father Damien wrote a letter to his brother. And this is what he wrote. He said, I make myself a leper with the lepers to gain all to Jesus Christ. And after 
16 years of living on the peninsula, Father Damien contracted leprosy. And he would die as a man who would give his life serving and ministering and loving in a no-go zone to people completely ostracized. A willingness to go beyond dividing lines to places that many avoid is a sure sign of gospel renewal. And we don't have to go back 150 years to Hawaii to to talk about no-go zones, do we? We go back 50 years into the majority of our cities across our country, and there were dividing lines of race that were very clear. When I moved to the Triangle eight years ago, I heard many people talk about Durham as the red-headed stepchild of the Triangle. It was the city to be avoided. Durham was the place with crime and and violence. And people would say, you just don't go to Durham. Durham was a no-go zone. And even still in the city of Durham, there are still major dividing lines. One of many is the freeway, 147, just out this door, running east and west. South of 147, where we are moving this way, is predominantly black. And you go north of 147, just a block, and there is a boom of gentrification and downtown revitalization. It is very easy for all of us, no matter who we are, no matter what culture we are or class we are, for us to have a us-versus-them mentality. People like me versus people different than me. Gospel renewal looks like loving and serving and taking the good news of Jesus across the dividing lines. In verse 14, there's this change that happens from Philip to the apostles. Peter and John are now the kind of main characters as they come down to Samaria. And and there's an occurrence here that I kind of, I just, I need to make comment about because it's important. The occurrence that happens in Acts chapter 8 only happens two other times in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 10 and Acts chapter 9. And the occurrence I'm talking about is when the Holy Spirit is sent to a believer at another time besides conversion. Because you could read Acts chapter 8 and it looks like there's this two kind of stage path to conversion. You put your faith in Christ and then down the road, the Holy Spirit is sent to you. And people lay their hands upon you. So, I need to address this because there is a whole theology developed out of this belief. And this pattern is unique and not normative in the book of Acts. The pattern in Acts is for the Holy Spirit to be sent at the time of conversion. Not for someone to place their faith in Jesus and then later have their hands, have hands laid upon them and the Spirit come. What is happening is unique and not the pattern. So let me tell you what God is doing. God is affirming here through the apostles that the Samaritans are not just being brought into the edges of this Jesus community called the church, but into the very center. That the church was advancing and breaking new ground. That the kingdom of God was advancing beyond Jerusalem into Samaria. So there had to be apostolic confirmation and the laying on of hands. What God is doing is completing the restoration of north and south coming together. Renewal is God bringing people who are divided, who despise one another, people who have been marginalized and avoided into the central life of this church. I hope hope you see 
that we aren't beating some hobby horse here at Christ Central Church in our desire to be a Christ-centered, cross-cultural community. A multicultural, multi-class, multi-generational, multi-interest, multi-stage of life church. This is not a hobby horse. The gospel from the outset has always been about bringing people together and breaking down, dividing lines and dividing walls. Philip went to Samaria because God called him to go. God sent him to go. And we will know renewal is happening when we're willing to go to no-go zones in Durham, to no-go zones around the world, when people go just because God calls them to go. And the Holy Spirit binds together a people who've been divided but now are united around Jesus. And do you notice that, that Philip goes, doesn't go preaching racial reconciliation? He doesn't go preaching uh, and creating a program. He went and announced Jesus. We must be Christ-centered and then allow Christ to bear the fruit of us being multicultural and multi-class and multi-you-fill-in-the-blank. So the two things we see are signs, the two signs, if you will, of renewal. Every member an evangelist and the gospel is breaking down dividing lines and dividing walls. But the next thing that I want us to look at is Simon. Simon, we have to look at Simon because I believe Simon shows us the dangers, the possible dangers that can arise even in the midst of renewal. Simon was a magician with incredible power. Verse 10 says, This man is the power of God that is called great. Many scholars think that those in Samaria thought Simon was deity. But when Philip arrives, Simon sees something in Philip that he does not possess. And verse 13 says that Simon believed and was baptized. Now this passage is debated, this, this particular part of the passage is debated around the question, did Simon really believe? Did Simon really trust and, and as a result was baptized? Did he have genuine true faith? And I could preach a whole sermon just on that, but I have to say that I believe this passage shows us that Simon was someone not truly converted. That Simon's faith was not genuine. He experienced what Hebrews 6 talks about. Tasting the spiritual experience, tasting of Holy Spirit, and then falling away. Because I deeply believe that the Bible teaches that once you place your faith in Jesus, you're always secured in that salvation because Christ will never let you go. He will never let you go. And this passage, again, is used by some to teach you can lose your salvation. And it creates so much anxiety in Christians. And I disagree wholeheartedly with that belief. Even after Peter rebukes uh, Simon, curses him, if you picked up, pretty much told Simon in verse 20, you and your money can go to hell. That's, the, I mean, today's translation. Simon, you and your money can go to hell. And then Simon asked for prayer, but Luke, the author, doesn't give us the ultimate fate of Simon. It, it doesn't, he doesn't tie it together for us. What happens to Simon, we don't know, because the point of the passage is not that. It's different. And I think Luke is highlighting Simon for a purpose, to give us warning, to give us apparent potential dangers that could come in the wake of spiritual renewal and revival. And I want to point out two. The first is this. People 
can be attracted to movements. Yes, even spiritual movements. To be around a rock star leader as that ministry becomes the it thing. You notice Simon in verse 13 says he continued with Philip. Seeing signs and great miracles, he was amazed. He was amazed at this man, Simon. God was using Philip. God was blessing the ministry of Philip. But Simon follows Philip not because of genuine conversion and faith in Christ, but because Philip's the man. He's the man with incredible power, and now Simon wants to be a part of this movement. So the normal pattern of discipleship was not come, be with me and watch me and be amazed at me. But that's what's happening here. Simon is enamored by Philip. He thinks Philip is this rock star and he doesn't want to leave his side. We have to be aware that some will be drawn to even spiritual movements, not because they've come to know Jesus, but because they want to be a part of something great. And I say that not so that you begin to look around and you become judge and jury of other people's motives so that you look inward and you begin to ask God to examine your heart and your motives. You know, there's a lot of buzz around the city of Durham right now. A ton of buzz about what the city's becoming and the changes and the new developments and the new restaurants. There is a buzz around our city and people are wanting to move here and live here and be a part of our city. Buzz can be cr- created around ministries and around churches. Buzzes buzzes can happen around churches. And people will want to check it out. And before you know it, that church becomes the it church. And there is a movement. And many who are following may not, not necessarily are, but may not be doing so because of their genuine faith in Christ. Now as a pastor, Timothy, I think we have to be very aware that churches and ministries can become personality-driven. And pastors of all people can have the rock star mentality and let everything revolve around them. So I honestly say pray for that for us. Pray against that. Rebuke us of that if we ever start to see that in our hearts and our lives. The second danger in spiritual renewal is when people want the gifts of God more than they want God Himself. Simon says in verse 19, Give me this power. The laying on of hands so that the Holy Spirit would come. He wants to purchase this gift. Simon wants to buy the power of laying on of hands and the sending of the Spirit. Have you ever heard the word simony? Uh, This is where we get the word simony. It means the attempt to buy spiritual office or to buy spiritual status or power. We have to be very careful that we're not attracted to what God can do for us more than we are attracted to who our God is. And when I hear pastors who preach messages that say God wants to give you money and God wants to give you power and God wants to give you status, and I hear of pastors like Creflo Dollar this past week who said, I just need 200,000 people to give me $300 so our ministry can buy a brand new Learjet for $65 million, I get angry. That is not the gospel. That is not what we see in Scripture. Spiritual renewal and spiritual revival is not about money, it's not about power, and it's not about status. God's grace, love, and mercy is unearned, unmerited. It is not for sale. Jesus Christ laid down His life. He rose, and He'll come again in order to purchase us. 
to redeem us from death and sin. He earned and merited salvation for those who would trust and believe. And He does not promise in this life money, success, power, status. And we cannot purchase God's blessing with our money or with effort or with our morality. The blessing of His love and His grace and His mercy are free. They're free gifts to those who will receive it. And God blows His Spirit and will work in ways that we cannot control. So He gains the glory. So we need to be aware of the dangers that come in the midst of renewal. And lastly, let me end by talking about the result. We've looked at two signs and two dangers. Let's look at the result of renewal. Maybe you overlooked it. I did the first time I read through this passage. Verse 8. Look at verse 8 again. So there was much joy in that city. There was much joy in that city. Renewal brought joy to the whole city as many believed and were baptized. The city was blessed. The city was changed as a result of this spiritual renewal. Luke, the author, did not say, and a few people received this joy and a few people were changed, but that the city was filled with joy. So I have to ask, do we pray for this in our city of Durham? Do we believe that God can work like this in Durham? And I'm afraid we don't most of the times. Because I'm not sure what your prayer life looks like at home or what your prayer life for renewal in the city looks like in your, your city groups. Or I kind of have an idea of what our prayer life looks like in midweek prayer gathering on Wednesday mornings. Uh, <laughs> And not to heap any guilt, but if that's an indication of our prayer life, uh, we're struggling. And I know we're struggling because I struggle. And if you're like me, we don't pray like we should. We don't pray like we should. And here's the thing, church. We, we cannot control the Holy Spirit moving. And the Holy Spirit blowing upon us and in our city. God moves and God works in the ways in which He pleases. But we sure can pray for it. We can pray for it and we can ask for it. And when we planted this church, we prayed that if for some reason we ever had to leave the city of Durham, that the city would miss us because we've been a blessing to the city, because of the joy we've brought to the city. We're not a church that is about ourselves. We're a church that exists for the blessing of the city of Durham. So will you join me in asking God for great things? Spiritual renewal, not a movement that will die, or power and status so we can feel good about ourselves, but spiritual revival. Our passage ends with verse 25. I love how verse 4 and verse 25, they're the bookends of this passage. Verse 25, they returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel, witnessing to many villages. Renewal looks like preaching and witnessing about the gospel. Every member an evangelist. Will you join us in proclaiming Christ in word and deed where God has placed you? An easy way to start. If relationships you already have, invite them to come on Sunday morning of Easter Sunday. Renewal looks like the gospel breaking down dividing lines and empowering us to go to these no-go zones for the sake of Christ, reconciling people to Himself. Will you cross those lines?
There are even lines in the midst of our congregation, cliques that can begin to form. Will you not let that happen? Will you cross those lines so that we are one family? And will you not just dream with me this morning, but will you pray? And will you ask God to do great things for his sake and for his glory? Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you. We thank you that it's not dependent upon us, but it's dependent upon you and the Spirit working. You do use us. You use us to proclaim Christ in the way we live our lives and the words that we use. You use us to proclaim Christ in the way in which we love one another across our differences. Give us awareness of dangers that might come, how the enemy may want to attack and and cause damage. And would you cause us to be a church that exists not for ourselves, but for the city and for this world? We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thank God. Um,